Welcome to the February 18th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we will learn about the cost-effectiveness of caplicizumab in acquired thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, review outcomes of a Phase two trial of pomalidomide in subjects failing prior therapy of chronic graft-versus-host disease, and examine results of a Phase one 2 study looking at the use of abrutinib and ubinutuzumab plus venetoclax in patients with mantle cell lymphoma. Our first topic is a study entitled Cost-Effectiveness of Caplicizumab in Acquired Thrombotic Thrombocytopenic Purpura by George Goshua from Yale University School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut, and colleagues. Acquired thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, or TTP, is a rare disease and hematologic emergency characterized by thrombotic microangiopathy, leading to end-organ damage. Acquired TTP is caused by the development of autoantibodies directed against the proteinase ADAMTS-13 that cleaves von Willebrand factor, leading to accumulation of thrombogenic ultralarge VWF multimers. In the absence of treatment, it is uniformly fatal, but therapeutic plasma exchange yields modern survival rates of 85% or more. Because acquired TTP is associated with autoantibodies, immune suppression is used as adjunctive therapy with the anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody rituximab being the most successful agent to date for reducing relapse rates. The most recent addition to treatment options for acquired TTP is caplicizumab. Currently the only FDA-approved medication for TTP, this is a first-in-class nanobody directed against domain A1 of von Willebrand factor, which prevents platelet aggregation resulting from their interactions with VWF. Caplicizumab was shown in the Phase II Titan and Phase III Hercules clinical trials to yield more rapid platelet count responses in acquired TTP when added to standard-of-care therapy compared to standard-of-care alone, albeit at the expense of increased bleeding rates due to transient reductions in von Willebrand factor and an increase in relapses following discontinuation of caplicizumab. Currently, cost remains a barrier to the widespread use of caplicizumab, at approximately $7,700 for a single dose, an average course of therapy costs approximately $270,000. However, effective therapies, even if costly, can still be beneficial for both patients and the healthcare system if they alter the natural history of the disease or improve quality of life. Goshua and colleages recently demonstrated that using rituximab in the treatment of initial or relapsed episodes of acquired TTP led to hospital cost savings because rituximab reduced long-term TTP relapse rates. In the current study, this team used data from the Titan and Hercules trials on caplicizumab to perform the first-ever cost-effectiveness analysis in TTP. Decision tree analyses, Markov analysis, and sensitivity models were employed to evaluate the cost-effectiveness of standard-of-care plus caplicizumab versus only standard-of-care. Previously collected data from both trials were analyzed from the healthcare system point of view. This data included medication cost, days of plasma exchange, ICU and total hospital length of stay, TTP recurrence rates, and deaths the authors tried to minimize bias and favor cost-effectiveness of caplicizumab in their modeling assumptions. 
However, they still found that over a five-year time horizon, the addition of caplicizumab to the standard of care yielded a projected incremental cost-effectiveness ratio of almost $1.5 million. This is significantly above the accepted 2019 U.S. willingness to pay of around $195,000. The addition of caplicizumab was not cost-effective due to its high cost and its failure to improve relapse rates. Nevertheless, the authors note that additional studies utilizing longer-term follow-up data are warranted to assess the full impact of caplicizumab on the cost of treating TTP. Shruti Chaturvedi from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland, provided commentary on this study. She discusses the broader issues of the high cost of prescription drugs and orphan drugs like caplicizumab that threaten healthcare budgets. She notes that while caplicizumab as currently used does not appear to be cost-effective, it still represents an important advance in TTP therapy. This medication clearly improves short-term outcomes, including reducing refractoriness to plasma exchange and mortality in TTP, both of which are unpredictable. Additional data are needed to establish which patients are most likely to benefit from caplicizumab and the ideal duration of therapy. The impact, if any, on long-term outcomes is also unknown, including neurocognitive function that could result from microvascular injury during acute episodes. These factors could impact the cost-benefit analysis. Future studies will ideally incorporate these variables, as well as other novel agents currently in clinical trials, including recombinant ADAMS-13. Until then, real-world data are needed to inform the optimal and most cost-effective methods to incorporate novel targeted agents into current treatment paradigms. Our second topic today is a study entitled A Randomized Phase II Trial of Pomalidomide in Subjects Failing Prior Therapy of Chronic Graft-Versus-Host Disease by Lauren Curtis from the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, and colleagues led by Stephen Pavlitek. Chronic Graft-Versus-Host Disease, or chronic GVHD, is an important cause of non-relapse mortality and functional disability in recipients of allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplants. Steroid refractory chronic GVHD is a therapeutic challenge, often complicated by sclerotic skin manifestations that are difficult to treat. Standard systemic therapy for moderate to severe chronic GVHD is a corticosteroid with or without a calcineurin inhibitor. However, about 50% of patients will ultimately fail steroids. Ibrutinib is the only FDA-approved drug for the treatment of chronic GVHD following the failure of more than one systemic therapy. New therapy options are needed. Pomalidomide is an immune-modulating drug, or IMID, that is structurally related to thalidomide and is FDA-approved to treat multiple myeloma. IMIDs contain an imide group and target cerebron which acts as a component of the E3 ubiquitin ligase complex to regulate various processes by inducing degradation of substrate proteins. Effects of pomalidomide include increased CD4-positive T-cells, suppression of Th2 T-cells, and stimulation of interleukin-12 production. Preclinical mouse models showed that pomalidomide prevents progression of and improves skin fibrosis from bleomycin-induced injury. While thalidomide has been reported as an effective therapy for severe chronic GVHD, it is rarely used, 
as the minimum effective dosage is poorly tolerated and associated with sedation, constipation, and neuropathy. Pomalidomide is a more potent imid than thalidomide, and a Phase 1-2 clinical trial reported that it could be effective in advanced chronic GVHD and well-tolerated at doses of less than or equal to 2 mg per day. Here, Curtis and colleagues conducted a randomized Phase 2 clinical trial to determine safety, efficacy, and preferred dose of pomalidomide in patients with moderate to severe chronic GVHD unresponsive to steroids and or subsequent therapies. 34 subjects, ages 21 to 73 years, were randomized to receive a stable or escalating dose, with the primary endpoint being overall response rate at six months. 32 subjects had sclerotic skin manifestations and had received a median range of five prior therapies. Most were still on steroid therapy and were enrolled with the objective of palliating bothersome symptoms. There was an overall response rate of 47% in an intent-to-treat analysis and 67% among all evaluable patients at six months. Patients had improvements in severe skin sclerosis as well as in symptoms involving joints and fascia, although all were partial responses. A daily oral dose of 0.5 milligrams was effective. Higher doses had adverse events such as lymphopenia, infection, or fatigue, without any benefit of improved responses. Analysis of biomarkers during pomalidomide treatment found a large increase in both plasma IL-2 and in the frequency of Treg cells, which may provide a protective effect against GVHD. There was no relapse of underlying malignancy within the two years of follow-up. Thus, the results show that pomalidomide is a safe and effective therapy for patients with severe chronic GVHD who had been refractory to prior treatments. However, one downside of pomalidomide is that 6 of 34 patients experienced flare-up of chronic GVHD within 6 months of starting treatment. These patients required steroid pulses, and 5 subsequently discontinued the study because of GVHD progression. In his accompanying commentary, Alexander Lazarian from the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida, concludes that this is a novel, well-designed, and well-conducted trial that provides compelling evidence for adding pomalidomide to current treatment options for steroid refractory sclerotic chronic GVHD. The results also support the use of pomalidomide in future trials incorporating experimental and or standard-of-care comparator arms. He also notes that as novel therapies continue to emerge, it becomes increasingly important to tailor each one to the individual patient. Based on chronic GVHD phenotypes such as fibrotic or inflammatory, as well as pathophysiologic mechanisms and underlying immune dysregulation. Our final topic today is a Phase 1-2 clinical study conducted by Stephen Leguil from Université de Nantes in France and colleagues entitled Ibrutinib, Obinutuzumab, and Venetoclax in Relapsed and Untreated Patients with Mantle Cell Lymphoma a Phase 1-2 trial. Mantle cell lymphoma, or MCL, is a hematological malignancy characterized by recurrent genetic alterations that affect cell cycle, DNA damage, and cell survival pathways. B-cell receptor signaling via Bruton's tyrosine kinase, or BTK, 
together with microenvironmental cues that modulate BCL2-dependent survival pathways, have also been identified as key functional dependencies in MCL pathogenesis and as potential therapeutic targets. Newly diagnosed patients with MCL are commonly treated with immunochemotherapy plus rituximab maintenance for ongoing therapy of residual lymphoma B cells with autologous stem cell transplant consolidation in younger patients. However, most patients relapse and response duration decreases from one salvage therapy to the next. Ibrutinib is a first-in-class BTK inhibitor and has been approved in relapsed MCL with an overall response rate of 68%. However, the complete response rate was only 23%, with progression-free survival of 31% and overall survival of 47% at two years. Resistance to BTK inhibitors can occur by diverse mechanisms, including acute BTK mutations or activation of the alternative NF-kappa-B pathway. Venetoclax is a BCL2 inhibitor that has single-agent efficacy in MCL. Here again, resistance is encountered, in particular, through overexpression of BCL2 family proteins via MCL microenvironmental cues. Dual targeting of BTK and BCL2 signaling pathways by combination therapy with ibrutinib plus venetoclax has recently demonstrated high efficacy in relapsed MCL. Preclinical studies in primary MCL cells have shown that microenvironmental-dependent long-term expansion and drug resistance to venetoclax can be counteracted by obinutuzumab, a type 2 glycoengineered humanized anti-CD20 antibody. Mechanistically, this occurs through downregulation of BCL-XL expression by inhibiting both classical and alternative NF-kappa-B signaling. These findings, together with reports describing favorable clinical results in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, provided a rationale for investigating triplet therapy by abrutinib, obinutuzumab, and venetoclax in MCL. The OASIS trial was initiated to investigate the maximal tolerated dose of venetoclax in combination with fixed doses of ibrutinib plus abinutuzumab and to assess the tolerability, safety, and efficacy in both relapsed and untreated patients with MCL. Here, the authors report the results from their Phase 1-2 study conducted in five centers in France and one in the UK. The results included Nine relapsed patients treated with abinutuzumab plus ibrutinib, comprising arm A of the study. 24 relapsed patients treated with abinutuzumab, ibrutinib, and venetoclax in arm B. And arm C that consisted of 15 treatment-naive patients treated with the triplet therapy. In arm A, 78% of subjects achieved a complete response. One- and two-year progression-free survival and overall survival were 89%, and the median duration of response was not reached. In arm B, 67% achieved a complete response. One-year progression-free survival was 74.5%, and overall survival, 87.5%. The median duration of response was also not reached. In arm C, 90% achieved complete response. One-year progression-free survival was 93.3%, and overall survival was 100%. Among 32 patients evaluable for minimal residual disease, 26 were MRD-negative, including 66% in arm A, 71.4% in arm B, and 100% in arm C. 
Le Guil and colleagues concluded the triplet combination of abinutuzumab, ibrutinib, and venetoclax was well-tolerated and provided high response rates at the molecular level in relapsed and untreated patients with mantle cell lymphoma, including high-risk patients with TP53 mutations. Although numbers in ARMC are small, the OASIS trial strongly supports further clinical investigations of this combination for untreated MCL patients. Commentary on the trial provided by Cami Maddox from the Ohio State University James Comprehensive Cancer Center in the United States, notes that non-chemotherapeutic frontline regimens are likely the future in mantle cell lymphoma, with the potential to be highly active and reasonably well-tolerated. The promising results from the 14 treatment-naive patients support further study of this triplet combination, especially for those with high-risk disease features. She also notes that whether or not ibrutinib will be the preferred BTK inhibitor in combination therapies remains to be seen. Finally, the role of retreatment at relapse in such scenarios remains unclear. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.